Welcome to Ladies of Mumble Podcast. We're in a mission to empowering women trying to thrive in their careers, raise a family, and make a difference. Our vision is to inspire social change and encourage future generations. Today, we have a very special guest, Lenina Oforti, mom of five, wife, social entrepreneur, consultant, and educator, passionate about storytelling, and she advocates for women and youth. Welcome, Lenina. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Welcome, welcome. Can you please tell us a little bit about yourself, your story, and your professional background? Yes, of course. Um, where do I start? So, yes, as you said, I'm a mum, a mum of five, and um, I think it's good for me to start at the beginning. I had my first child really young, 17, um, so inverted commas, someone will deem me as a teen mum. Um, and I was still very passionate about education, academia, and I had always been quite bright in school, etc. So my, when I shared this with my my mum at 16, well, she said, you know, you're choosing to have a baby, but you still have to be who you're meant to be. You're, you have to be a woman now because you're going to be a mom. And I said, OK. Um, the day that I found out that I was pregnant, I actually got a job um, before I even found out. And it was just quite interesting because I think somehow, you know, I've been really blessed to kind of navigate, you know, amazing things and have great experiences with children but obviously there was bumps at the beginning because I was so young um I think I continued to study um because I love the arts theatre um poetry is something I was always involved in as a child but I always wanted to help people um but as a child I'd always told everybody I'll be a doctor and it was something in my family that everybody was waiting for me to be they just believed that so obviously when I was pregnant so young I kind of just went and done nursing to appease everybody and when I was like 18 months in when you get your nurses pinning you start to specialize I realized I hate giving injections <laughs> they used to put me in the um in the nurse's like office and practice for me to practice on um, oranges um, because I hated doing it on um, humans. I was like, I can't do nursing, um, but I still want to help people. So I went on to study English and theater studies because that was always my passion. And then when I, that was after I had my second child. And when I came, uh, moved out of London, I was just really passionate about using the arts as a methodology for change because I always felt like when I was writing, I felt so free. And I didn't want to be on stage, but I knew a lot of people, young people wanted to like use the arts and try and express themselves, but they just didn't know how. So I, myself and my husband started like a small community group, um, helping young people who potentially haven't had the best start in life. And we used to use the art so they could understand the societal issues that the young people were being faced with, but actually um, in a different way, because maybe if people are like picketing or speaking out or young people are speaking out, but not in a way that, you know, older people or the next the, um, the older generation would be able to understand it. So through the arts, they're there, aren't they? So it's actually right in front of you and it's quite almost tangible. So it was very, very powerful. So um, from there, I went to do an MA 
at um, Royal Central School of Speech and Drama in theatre and the criminal justice system because I really, I knew I'd taken it to a certain stage already with my arts work, but I just wanted to upskill. I wanted to frame it and shape it. And also, sadly, we live in a bit of a pretentious society. So at that point, I had written many plays. We had toured plays. However, I wasn't maybe recognised as a playwright or it was more community. And a lot of people, you know, if it's a community theatre, you don't maybe take it as seriously. And I just wanted to shape my methodology a lot more. So I went to Royal Central, I don't know, MA. And then after that, I worked for a criminal justice charity. So I was writing um, alternative sentencing programs. So instead of somebody going on to prison, if it was um, maybe a low level offence, they would come through the arts program to be rehabilitated, get some skills, get some qualifications, etc. And then I continued just writing projects with this organisation. And then I was fast forward, I was pregnant with my fifth child and I was a director of that charity. And I was kind of like in that really vulnerable position as a mum, because when I was young, I was diagnosed with polycystic ovaries, me having the amount of children I have is nothing short of a miracle. So when I had my fifth child, I wasn't expecting to have a fifth child. We thought that we had tried for all of the, for the children. The fourth child was like, yes, we are finished. So I wasn't expecting to have a fifth child. And it was a miracle. But at the same time, it was like, oh my gosh, I've just done my MA. Everything's really great. I'm like doing this amazing work. What am I going to do? So I'd always had this research in mind um, to work with offenders and to kind of understand where they've come from to allow them to move into that lifestyle because you know we've got children they're just innocent babies like we are raising them it's like play-doh or like a sponge they're absorbing things and you know you expect they're going to be amazing young people so when we see young people on the television or where they're perpetuated like demonized you might have to know that something happened before that and like, it was on my heart so much. So because I was in this position where I needed to be a little bit more still and protect my baby because of the vulnerabilities that my body had, I like pitched it to the company and said, look, I want to spend three to four months with some, some of the young people and, and also adults who have offended or been to prison and talk to them about their life before they committed crime, what moved them into that trajectory. And I created a piece of research verbatim called Backstory, um, where I worked with them for all those months, got their stories, and some of them were so harrowing. And then we transcribed them and then I turned them into a play. And that play toured like a uh, hundred odd schools to show young people the things that can happen. A lot of young people spoke out about things they were going through at home, neglect, abuse, etc., etc. And it was a really powerful, one of the best pieces of writing I think I've ever done. And it really pushed me to realize like, okay, you've got something here and you need to stick at this because you can help people. So that's moved me into consulting and shaping projects and programs for other people. And all of the time myself and my husband were doing work before, we were actually funding the projects ourselves. We were going for front, front I was doing the bid writing. So I've shaped that as a consultancy. So everything I've ever done myself, because we had to, I used all of my acumen to shape the consultancy and then start working with other organisations who needed a Lenina, basically. <laughs> um, um, and fast forward to like a couple of years ago, because I've been working with a lot of people who um, work with young people who are leaving care, I realised that they were probably the most vulnerable young people that I'd ever worked with, because obviously they didn't have that foundation at the beginning. So when they were leaving, uh, entering and transitioning into adulthood, 
they literally didn't have all the skills that they needed to survive because you know we as adults it's tough and we may have had that foundation and it's still so hard so um i'd always had it in my heart to open like a house or a housing provision for young people who are in care because i felt like i wanted to give them those tools and i moved out really young and i think i i hit a lot of like stumble i had stumbling blocks because i was a mom with a baby living in a house and I was trying to run this house and navigate the bills and everything else and I found it really hard and I think I engaged in with certain people that maybe I wouldn't have if if I was living at home still I probably had experiences that I wouldn't have had if I was still at home with my mom but I still had really good family but some of these young people didn't and I still had hard times so I couldn't imagine what it would be like for them so I'd always spoken about it and then Myself and my husband sat down, we said, oh, do you know, is this something you really want to do? And I said, yeah, I really want to do it. And I set about thinking about who would I do it with? So two of my, the two other directors are two women that I went to school with, but they both have a background in similar fields and it just made sense. So now we have a housing company, um, Principal Housing, and we house young people who are still in care but they are between 16 and 18 and they live there with our staff 24 hours a day and they learn how to cook, how to clean, how to look after themselves, how to feel good, how to feel beautiful, how to feel handsome, how to feel powerful and ready to take on adult life. And yeah, like, and that's where I am really. <laughs> yeah. It is just incredible. And I think that by giving them these comforts of home, that foundation of how to do all of those bits around the home that we would learn from either shadowing our parents or being taught how to do it. You're giving that. And some people might think that that's like such a small task, but all of these things build up and these become stresses and you're teaching them also how to manage money, how to manage a home life skills that they may not have achieved um, otherwise. Um, and in such a short period of time too. Um, now, I think the question on everybody's mind right now is, how do you manage to run a consulting business, work on your PhD, be involved in community initiatives, and raise five children at the same time? <laughs> oh my gosh, a lot of people ask me this, but I, I have to be just really frank. The first thing I'd say is my faith. I believe in God. I pray about everything, probably. <laughs> Um, because I almost feel like people, some, everybody's got their own beliefs and I'm respectful like, and obviously, um, you know, it's different for everyone, but I almost feel like I was, I was created for a purpose and that stays with me. And it's almost, how can I put it? It's as if you, you were created for something because, you know, we all know how <laughs> we, we are created and there's like a trillion to one chance that it will be that sperm and that egg that will meet and create whatever child and and then there was me then there was you etc so you know it's by it isn't by chance that i'm here so there's a reason why i'm here that's the first thing and i and i because because i believe in god i'll say well you brought me here so when i'm going through tough times or when i have a lot going on or i feel these unctions to do all of this amazing work with so much responsibility in my own personal life i need that strength to come and I need that strength to come in me to be able to do the work that I'm put here to do. That's how I see it. So that's the first part. 
I start my day with a prayer without a doubt. I just give it all away because sometimes there's things on your mind from the night before or you're thinking, oh my God, I've got such a hectic day. So what am I going to do? How am I going to plan it all? But literally we can't, we beat ourselves up a lot as mums. So I just look at my day. Like I always say that I see it like dough that's rolled out with a rolling pin. <laughs> and like my mind is like got a grid in it. And I just kind of section out everything. And obviously there's things that take priority and things that are at the end. And that's how I, I, I live my life. But when it comes to my family, I think knowing that when you wake up in the morning, myself, I wake up and I'm there for my children, be it breakfast, be it a conversation, um, and for my husband as well, just checking in with everybody to make sure they're all right and that they're set for the day. And they're all very different ages as well. So it's not as heavy as it once was. The youngest is six, the oldest is 22, almost 23. So if you look at that and all the ages in between, obviously they've got very varying needs, but I, I'm very aware of them. And I'm very self-analytical and very self-critical, but not in a damaging sense. So I'm always kind of weighing up what is going on in my house and what's going on around me. What can I actually delegate? Because I mean, there was a time when I couldn't delegate because I just thought that I had to do everything and I got burnt out and things weren't going right or th I would miss something at home. And I didn't like the way that felt. So I had to make the decision to delegate. With the housing company, obviously there's three directors and we are so happy because that means that not one director, I'm the managing director, but it means that none of us have to really like, I don't have to take everything on. And I've had to understand that. And then we've got members of staff. So I'm literally overseeing and kind of giving vision, etc. With the consultancy, I choose what work I want to take on. Now my PhD is in children and young people services, but it's about storytelling for change. So obviously everything that I'm kind of doing client-wise client -wise is literally similar trajectory. So if my, my client will either be in the arts with the youth or it will be maybe someone who works in the similar sector with the housing and leaving care. So everything kind of intertwines. So therefore I'm, I'm constantly researching for my PhD whilst I'm supporting my clients. And I wouldn't have it another way because I wouldn't be able to manage <laughs> If I wanted it, I wouldn't be able to manage it. But I think, um, I know for a lot of mums, there can be a, a moment where you'll think, this looks like a lot in a list. And I, I've probably had a lot of judgment and people might not say, but I know, or you feel the judgment. You can't possibly be looking after everybody if you're doing all of that. But I'd like to say that they're wrong because I usually wake up two to three hours before everybody in the house anyway. I think during lockdown, I've been a little bit lax and I don't feel bad about it because I needed the break. But generally, I'll wake up before everybody and just get those emails in, in my drafts and schedule or scheduled for a certain time. So I know it's done. And then if that's a day where my older daughter's at home, then I know that we can sit down and have lunch. We have working lunches. You're studying, I'm studying, but I still need to do this work, but I want to spend time with you. So let's get something. Let's do some eggs. Let's do some salmon, avocado. Let's have a nice, like, sit down at the table. I'm still going to have my laptop. We'll have a little cheeky laugh. I'm working, but you need to get your head down as well. And having building that rapport with your children and being honest, you want um, them to have a really good life. They want a really good life. But actually, you can't have that if we're not working. And for each level and layer that's added to myself or my husband, they are actually getting a richer, not richer in money, I mean richer in acumen, richer in what's within our hearts as we're giving out to other people. They're getting that, that in their lives as well, more so than anybody who's outside.
This is so incredible. I must say, Lenina, I've told you this before. I think you're very much the definition of a superhero. And by, what I mean by that is there is the need out there to have role models like yourself that are not just shaping the future of our generation, our own children. You're going a step ahead and you're trying to help other children as well. So you are the definition of really doing a social change. So which is why we absolutely love you. Um, and it goes hand in hand as well with what we do in Mumble Forum. Um, just to tell you a little bit of background, it is true. Multiple skills, like you just said yourself through your story, you know, from nurse to, to, to education, you know, to all the different wonderful things you do. It really gives you all the different skills to become, to shape you, like you say, a Play-Doh into what you are right now, this really unique set of skills, plus a multitasking one because motherhood does give us that. Um, I think what I wanted to ask you really is, um, what is a profound lesson that your children have taught you about yourself as a mother, individual and professional? And I definitely want you to touch upon the sense of purpose because you were saying how you felt that purpose always, but has it changed after becoming a mother? I think oh, my children, my children have almost made me um, because I think when I first, when I had my first child, I, I was really quite bold about being a young mum. I didn't realise that there was shame attached to that. <laughs> like I didn't get, because I was always quite a bold character. And also my dad had always told me like I was amazing and I could do anything. And even when I was told him I was pregnant, most dads would be really disappointed to be. He just kind of still championed me as did my mum. So I think my oldest child, when I looked at her, at, th at first, obviously I was still quite young, you know quite jovial but a few years in I think by the time she was about three I really realized oh my god you have to take your life so seriously because I looked at her and I thought what would I want for her and that made me want even more for myself because I know I'm I'm a strong believer in mirroring young children mirror everything and I think even when we were on a clubhouse talk someone said this as well and I believe in this because my children are watching me they're watching everything I do. And one of the profoundest lessons I think I learned was about the ability to be excellent and, and still work up hard and show up without overworking. Because I think I had like a really strong skill in overworking and just doing way, way too much. And as a woman, I felt that when I was in employment, I had to really show everybody because they knew I had children that you know I could still do the work I'd maybe you know like I am not tired I'm not just going to be sick because I'm a mum so I literally felt through my my children that you know I can't overwork like this because when I'd get home and I'd be just so exhausted and I wouldn't have that much energy to give back so I think that through watching them and thinking about what I'd want for them I felt that I, I had to look at what I wanted for me. I wanted to be like a wonderful person and do everything I, I felt I wanted to achieve. However, I didn't want to kill myself in, in the same instance. And I wouldn't have wanted to see my children working like that either, especially not to prove to people their worth. I think that I, I, I how can I shape this? I think I learned my, my, the, the level of my worth through my children because I want my children to think they're wonderful. I want them to have great qualities and to be giving and to be loving and to be kind. And I think that that's how I live, but I didn't always look at myself as that type of, as a amazing person. It took me a long time, but the more 
love I have grown, my love for my children is infinite, of course, as you understand as mums, but the more I've looked at them and watched them grow, is the more that I want for them. And I thought, you can't say that you want all of these things for your children and this greatness and this well-being, etc., and you don't have it for yourself because it's hypocrisy. And children see that. And that's that's that. I think that's even for personal and professional. But I think with when it comes to purpose, when I was younger, I always just cared about people. I used to lie in my bed at night and once I've been tucked in and pray for everybody and i remember blowing kisses like blowing kisses to god but each kiss was for like a family member or friend and everything uh, that people went through touched me i didn't know that that was empathy as a child obviously <laughs> but as i've grown older i know that i'm an empath and it is sometimes a heavy load because you you can't shirk that like it's innate and i think it's it, that's why it links strongly to purpose and that's why i know that i've always wanted to help people i just didn't know how i would go about it and i think it purpose is something that when i see things on the news or they're the things that really bug me the most and i feel like so frustrated about and that's partly why i've done the doctorate as well because you know some doors are not open um to me as just me, sadly, and I wanted to know more. I wanted, I want to change policy. Um, and I believe that you can't make a policy about a certain group of people if you don't understand those people. I myself, I'm, I'm not from uh, an affluent background. So I understand the struggle of a lot of marginalized young people. The area that I was brought up in had people who have gone on to be superstars like Adele, I'm from Tottenham originally, but it's actually classified as one of the most deprived um, wards in the whole of the UK. But it doesn't mean anything. When you're brought up there, you still have those dreams, you still have those desires, but you're put in a box because you come from somewhere that has like, it's a good book, <laughs> that has like a label so when you say where you're from someone will instantly think oh well you're like this or you're like that or that means you don't know much about this or that i'm still that person who was brought up there however the purpose has burned deeper within me because i've been able to move into a whole different terrain with my academia with the passion i've got with the faith um with in my marriage with my children and the circle, very small circle of people I have around me who believe in my purpose and my vision. I think that you touched upon so many interesting topics there. Um, one of them being, how can you know, the government be writing policy if they are not coming from those specific experiences or including people to, from those backgrounds to share their story so that they can make productive changes to make you know a positive impact with this um you know i first came across this when monique and i read candace braithwaite's i'm not your baby mother it's an excellent eye-opening book because we've only got our own personal experiences as mothers and reading her story you know, it was just, it was so enlightening. And we were wondering, um, do you think that um, motherhood came with a label for you? And um, do you think that the government can possibly do more to support mothers to help reintegrate them back into work and make this a successful transition for them? 
Yes, that's a really good question. And that's actually a really good book as well, by the way. <laughs> yeah. Um, I think it definitely came for a la- with a label for me. And I think a label that I didn't actually know at first, I'll be honest, because I was really proud about my children. And I always quite, I looked quite young when I had even up to a few children, I looked younger than I was. I felt I didn't realize it, but I would just openly speak and people then like, you know, ask me, okay, how old your daughter? How old are you? And they'd start calculating. Oh, you were really young. Oh, did you have her at 10 and make jokes, etc. And I didn't realize that, I knew obviously that being a teenage mum, that people looked down on it. I knew that, but I don't think I realized the stigma of it as much as I, I should have maybe. And not that I should have owned that, but at the same time, I was really naive. So I would openly speak, which I should be able to, about my children. And I had two children by the time I was um, 22. So obvious, and I wasn't married yet. I got married when I was 24. And people judged me. And they might not have said it, but you could see it. And also they, they, they limited me. And I think people thought like, oh, you're going to do that. And it's not that they think you're lying, but they they can't believe it because it doesn't add up to their perception of what a woman is, what a teen mum is, and all of the other. They've got this stereotype, like you was pregnant at 16, so that means you must be like crazy or you should must be like this or must be like that. But it can happen to anybody. And there's probably a lot of people who <laughs> maybe have got pregnant at 16, they didn't have the child, so we wouldn't know about it. It doesn't change who you are. And I think it's really interesting because I met people even when I was doing my MA and by then I was like, that was like eight, nine years ago. So I was like 31, 32. And you know, people would talk to me and then I'd say how many children I had because I had four children at that time. And you could feel the judgment. Like, or people say, oh, you haven't you got a television or, you know, like just silly jokes. And it, it's like they belittle everything else about you. And it's quite interesting. I think in regards to the in- reintegrating mums into workplace part, I think because that judgment of mums, especially mums with a lot of children is still there, even mums are judgmental. <laughs> so it's like, if I say I've got five children, someone will be like, oh, you're crazy. Not knowing how many miscarriages I've had, not knowing that it's been a fight for me to have that many children, not knowing how blessed I feel because of that fight to have the children I've got. And I think within the workplace, if you have women that are like that, then you most certainly probably have a lot of men that might be like that as well. So therefore when you're going to work or going back to work after the baby is born, I went back to, um, work after my fifth child and I didn't stay that long because I knew deep in my heart that when I was there I wasn't that happy not because of them but because you feel that pressure of if you're tired you know that you're tired potentially you could just be tired anyway without children but everybody knows how many children you've got that you've got children so you're probably tired because of that or you you people are waiting for you not to be available because your child has a play or you don't want to skip out a little bit early because of something. And I think the government does obviously have to look into the, you know, like some of the restrictions that are in place. And also for some women, they have to go back to work 
because I think certain things happen when you stay out of work on maternity leave. The money's not the same. People not don't always want to go back to work. Some people do because they, you know, they feel like, oh my God, I need to see other people. But some people actually want to stay at home longer and they can't afford to. So I think those things have to be looked at because actually we don't live in a very fair society. We know that. Um, and because of this, I think that plays out heavily when you are a mum in the workplace, the times that you finish work, you finish work at five. So for example, there's very, and the jobs that allow you to finish at three are either very senior because of the point that you can work from home, you know, like you're a director, et cetera, or they are not, they are entry level. So therefore it's either, there's nothing in the middle. There's hardly any jobs that you will find that you can go in at a semi-decent wage and that they have the flexibility for people to leave to pick up their children. If you are in senior management or in directorship, like you can leave, like you can say, oh, I'll catch up with that this evening because you're talking to the other directors, you're talking to the board. They know you've got that, they trust your acumen, majority. However, that's not for everyone. So I'm not speaking for everybody because I, I think some people who are directors will be like, it's not like that at my workplace. <laughs> but then I know for sure the majority of mums who can pick up their children and are working are usually taking more entry level jobs. And that works around their children. They can work at the schools in the lunchtime. They may be able to work in nurseries, et cetera, et cetera. So I think those are things that have to be reviewed because... I think for, for myself personally, entrepreneurship has been a lifesaver because I felt like as a grown woman, I don't want to be asking my boss every 10 seconds if I can like go and see my son's play. I want to go and see my son's play. So I literally need to be my own boss because then I'm only having to deal with myself. And I think, yeah, I think there's a lot that needs to be done for mums right now. And I think we've come a long way, definitely. But I think when we, come, when we get somewhere, inequality there's always a plateau it's like well we've done that for you so just enjoy that for the next decade and i think we have to keep on championing and trailblazing it's not something you can stop and you almost when you're too tired to continue you just pass the baton till we really get to where we're meant to be we have to show more of what you are to the world and, and what women like yourself are doing and also showing their struggle because it is unfair having to work harder to prove something that you know you know you're not and almost having to lose a chance at a job because oh she has five children she definitely can ma handle this managing position so I'm going to give it to this other girl like you know based on having children not based on your skills so that that is something that I really feel passionate about and I'm really pleased that you touched upon that um I, I think you probably already responded this, but maybe we can uh, explore a bit more. Where did your passion for advocating for marginalized youth come from? What does your work exactly involve? But, but most importantly, actually, I know you also have a passion of gender equality and the importance of, you know, being there for children and, and giving them the tools. But I'm sure the children that you help, right, that, that your organization on helping and shaping are they giving them tools as well to, to battle the fact of, you know, being judged by their gender? Wow, that's a big question. All right, let me do it in bits. <laughs> sorry, I went on, I almost answered some of your questions before, sorry. Um, okay, so I think I'll go back to like my, my childhood. Like my, my parents put me into a private school when I was younger and um, 
it was quite strange because I was in a private school with in the community that I grew up in, which was a it, to me it was like a bit strange. I didn't know the community that I lived in had woes or any issues or any deprivation because I only knew my private school was in that community. There were 60 of us in the whole school <laughs> and 10 in each year. Um, so when I was there actually, my head teacher, she realized I'm a chatterbox, like I, I, I talk. Um, but instead of saying, oh, you're a chatterbox, she sent me to like the North London Festival to recite prose from when I was four years old in, um, in Highgate. And literally everything that I, every innate thing that I had inside me, she used it, like you talk a lot, you're very inquisitive. And she would like, she would make you write essays and things that you don't usually do at the age I was. And then when I was 10, she said to the secondary school board, I can't teach this girl anything else and she needs to start high school. So I started high school at 10, but I actually went to a high school that was an, a state school, a normal school, it wasn't private. And when I went to that school, I realized that there was a world going on around me that I didn't actually know anything about. There were, there was thousands, about a thousand young people compared to 60. It was a shock. And, and as a black woman, like I had my experience with the other black pupils nuanced each other. Like our parents might listen to the same music, et cetera, et cetera. But at the same time, some of our experiences did not. And I think I felt a bit, I felt alien in that place. And I've always felt a bit betwixt and between. So I had this really deep understanding of marginalization from when I was probably about a teenager, when I was able to go out and be by myself. Then I, my parents got divorced and then things changed a lot. And I realized that my mom was like a single mom and she's working like two jobs and I'm by myself in the house most of the time, nearly every single day. And I realized like, oh my God, there's two different worlds like on this planet. Like there's things where things are going really good and things are not going so good at all. But obviously you don't look at that at 13, 14 as marginalization. So as I became an adult, I realized, oh my God, life is not actually not fair. That there are people who are doing really, really well because they've worked hard, but there are people who are not doing well and they're working just as equally as hard or even more so, and they just cannot get there. And actually that's because it's very systemic and it's built that way. And it was really painful when it hit me because then I realized that my purpose to help these people who haven't had the best start or people coming from the same place where I'm coming from, because I, some, my story is not just this. And I've been through things myself in my teens that I wouldn't want for my children and they haven't had to go through because they've had a different life, thankfully. But I looked at that and thought of what I've been able, where I've been able to go and what I've been able to achieve. And I was like, everybody should be able to have these opportunities because I've got faith and because I'm like a bulldozer pushing and I'm not taking no for an answer and I'm working and working. And I have my mum who's like this cheerleader and my husband who tells me, yeah, you can do this. I feel like not everybody has that. And I've witnessed it. I've witnessed it. I've seen people who have got such excellent gifts, just all the gifts just crumble or them just not have that self-belief and you can champion them and champion them, but because it's so ingrained in their psyche, they literally cannot break those walls. And systemically as well, knowing that the that black women and black men are less likely to be employed in senior management 
knowing that, just knowing that as a black person is actually painful, is irking. And I really am so determined like, to make sure that I claim and take up the space that I feel I'm meant to, because I don't think it's fair. But then for the young people, they can black, white, any race who are from the margins, who are marginalized, they go through so much. And when you're young, you don't have that, you, you don't have that same fight because actually you are supposed to be given those tools. And in within our organization, yeah, we do give them those tools. We are constantly telling them, you can do this, you're amazing, don't worry. You've been through this, this, and this, and look how resilient you have been. Look how, they have been through things that we could not even dream of living through. And they're still getting up to go to college. They're still pushing to, to try and get a job. And that must be so hard because you know when you're feeling a little bit fed up, you don't want to fill out an application form, let alone if you've been through a, a history, a chronology of events. So we are making sure our staff and ourselves, we make sure that the young people know that they are amazing and that the world is their oyster. And I tell you what my conviction is for this. My major conviction is when I see a 16 year old girl who has got in trouble or is going through things, and people are like, oh, she's so this or she's so that. I remember me. I remember me at 16 and pregnant. I remember me at 16 and pregnant and like, you know, just wearing whatever I wanted, even though I was pregnant. I remember just like how I was and with no, like, you know, you can't tell me anything and all of the rest of that. And I think, imagine if specific key people who have supported me in my journey looked at me like that, looked at me like just this 16 year old who can't make it or is no good, I wouldn't be me. And that's the problem what we've got right now. People look at people where they are at that moment. They don't look at them where they're going. I look at people where they could be because I, when I was 16 and walking around with a big belly, thinking that I knew everything about motherhood, which I clearly obviously did not. <laughs> people were looking at me like, I, they probably thought I would never make it, but I'm here now. Five children, I'm married. I am happy, you know, I have multiple businesses. I am working on my doctorate and my doctorate is not for me so that I can have doctor because I have letters now and I never put them after my name. I'm not, if you do, you do, but that's not who I am. And I realized that I almost passed through so many things for now. I passed through these things, I, not for, to be quiet, but to share them so that other people can be empowered and know you actually aren't just that person sitting there now. There's another version of you in the future but everybody needs someone to share that kind of little window of hope with them and that's yeah that's where my purpose and the passions come from that is very powerful <laughs> let me tell you <laughs> it is very very powerful and it resonates with me every single word you've said I think the key that also it stuck with me is when you were talking about people having different experiences and therefore maybe not having enough empathy or understanding for other people. I think you're right. I mean, the, the system is a problem. And I think, you know, it almost, I think as mothers, I guess also our responsibility is to expose our children to have friends from different backgrounds. Because if you raise your children in a bubble, they're not going to be able to to relate to other humans that, like you said in your quotes, breathe the same air. And at the end of the day, we need to be raising children that just see other children like, you know, equal, because that is, that is the world we, we, we deserve. 
and and it's not only hard you know judging people based on their background or you know a monetary condition but then you have on top of that you know your gender and then you have on top of that you know people having to fight the fact that they have a certain ethnicity and it's like why you know we we i still cannot believe that only yesterday we celebrated our first vice president woman and of color in the united states of america i mean what a moment and why i say that is because girls little girls were looking at the tv and feeling like they can do that like suddenly it's possible um i know you're passionate about promoting equality and tackling racism let's start with equality can you break down in terms for us how we can effectively model and teach our children about equality yeah i think when it comes to the children is i think it's quite easy in some respects but then it's quite tricky because like obviously I've got boys and girls and I think simple things like for example I have daughters but I I don't want my sons to think that when something needs cleaning up it can only be my daughter who does it <laughs> so to me it's really important that my sons they help out in the house and that the chores are divvied up correctly obviously age as well so the girls happen to be older sadly for them. but so there's more that they could potentially do but at the same time letting the boys know they have to be part of that process because we're all walking on the same stairs um we are all eating in you know in the same dining area we're still do you understand what i mean so we all need to be part of that process and i think those things they're the easiest um starting points in your house because there's nothing wrong with a boy tidying up because actually um why not and i think some of these things are things that are taken for granted or they can be misconstrued because to be honest as a woman i do prefer to be the person who's more active and involved in the fluffing of the house <laughs> but that's my preference it's not the same for everybody but and also from there i'll link to the fact that that's not all that i'm about and i want my sons to know that that when they go out and they finally find a partner because they might they they might find somebody who is a real homebody that person can one day get up and decide that they want to be an astronaut, <laughs> you know, maybe that's a bit far-fetched, but the point is they might want to go out and pursue something, or they may meet someone on their journey who's in academia, and I want my son to be able to respect that woman's dream and that vision for her life, and that when they merge and form a relationship with somebody, that they will be able to love that person while they're on their journey to becoming who they're meant to be and even though they become one almost when they're married that they still have that part of themselves as well i think that with boys you know just like girls they sit down and they will listen to you so when you see a lot of young boys or men who are quite you know maybe misogynistic a lot of that is what they've seen around them and i think that's why it's really important for your sons to to see what you do and understand that you can be a woman is not just you know somebody who just gives birth and cleans up but actually they have opinions and they are you know inquiry they're investigative and we we can be researchers and academics but we can still also go home so in 2020 we saw that 
racism was again pushed to the forefront of concerns um, that we are still you know being deeply affected by in our societies how can we as parents speak to our children about racism and do you have any suggestions of daily practices modeling activities and even some common mistakes that parents could maybe avoid in in their discussions with their children to make this successful, easily absorbed, understood, and a positive experience? Yeah, I think, um, obviously we've all been having a lot of conversations like this more than ever um, with how 2020 went down in regards to a lot of civil unrest. And I think using those opportunities are really important because they're, but not only waiting for those opportunities to happen is what I would say because I think it's really quite a negative heightened time. And I think young people and children can make assumptions based on that time only. So it's only important when that's happening or it's only important when something's going wrong. Well, actually it's more of a mindset that you want embedded in your children. Um, as we know, when children go to school, they're usually some form of diversity, depending on what area, because there's some areas where the population of black and minority ethnics is really low, but potentially there are opportunities at school and children are really loving. They are just the epitome of what you're giving them at home usually when they go to school. So they can integrate quite well because they've never been told that it's wrong. But when, you, when they get out into the big wide world, they look more at what's been around them in their parents' social circle. So potentially not everybody will have a black or minority ethnic friend, but the conversations that I think need to be had is that all of us are made up of the same matter. We are all born, you know, babies. Um, we all have, you know, the same flesh within us, lungs within us, and we're all breathing. That's why I said in my quote about breathing the same air, because when people make it like black and minority ethnics, and speaking of as a black person, as a taxi turn otherworldly kind of being, that is where the biggest problem is. Even the term BAME is crazy because you've made us an acronym, clumping us all into this kind of one word, which cannot at, at any point that it's used sum up all of the people who are black and minority ethnic it doesn't take that much longer to say it and i think when you're speaking to your children if you're as a person or a non a person who's not of color you have to let them know that actually when we're all born we're born equal we're not maybe potentially when it comes to finances and hierarchy because of the structure we are, we're living in the social structure but we are just all born equal. Babies come out, majority of them will be crying. And however, what happens is when we start walking and talking and become fully fledged, you know, beings, some form of in, um, inequities take place and they're wrong. And I think for children, it's really quite hard to comprehend that a child who's got brown skin may not have the same opportunities and that's when you best that you catch them because they're shocked by the fact that their little friend in the primary school will leave and have a tougher journey because of their skin color you need to catch them then and, and tell them and that and how do you feel about that and they'll think it's wrong a child will be able to fathom that it's wrong and that's why like even the scripture it says that we should be like children 
because there's an innocence that children have that adults somehow lose that children don't care i my daughter i remember when i was younger somebody that i knew had lost had their leg amputated and actually a lot of children would notice that but for some reason because she already knew him she just sat with him still and she didn't really say anything. And I thought, isn't that interesting? But it's just the way that children receive others. Adults don't receive in the same way. We're very judgmental. So when you're speaking to your child, just like when I sit down and speak to my children about racism, because they couldn't believe that it would be tougher for them. But they learned when my son went to high school, he realized, oh my God, some of the teachers seem racist. They've want some of the teachers treat us black boys differently in the class. And I said, and this is what I've been talking to you about. Actually, there's a lot of racism and people don't want to face it. And I think another thing is not downplaying it and pretending that it doesn't exist. I think a lot of parents, people, and, and obviously I speak to white women who they don't know what to say because there's so many things that saying on Instagram, especially don't say it like that and don't say it like this. But I think when it comes to your children, the first point of call is just to tell them that treating someone differently because of the color of their skin, one is wrong. That's a child. So you can't give them too much to carry. But the point is the way that somebody looks, the, somebody, the way that somebody speaks, that means an accent. That means if somebody doesn't articulate themselves as well because they come from a different part of London. You don't look down on them. You treat them exactly the same. You are looking, teaching your children how to look at someone's heart how the way, uh, if a black child talks to my, my equally black son like crap, I will tell him to get, to cut him off as a friend. I don't care if he's white, black, Asian, whatever else. Uh, and that's how I am raising my children. How is that person treating other people? What's inside that person's heart? How does that person speak? And as the child gets older, obviously you can go into deeper conversations, but younger children, you just need them to understand that. If somebody's chubby, if somebody's brown, if somebody's white, if somebody's, you know, creamy color, you still be nice to them. You treat them nicely, you treat them with respect. And you start that early on. And then it's easier to have conversations because they will come home and say, what's that on the news? And why is this happening? And then you can go into the real depths and the history of racism. But with children, I think that children are the easiest to teach. It's the adults that are a problem, to be honest. Um, I heard from one of the organizations that I work alongside, um, they had given a really excellent kind of starting point of um, modeling. And that was to take a look around at your circle of friends. Does your circle of friends look like you? Or is it a great representation of the tapestry of our city? And that is one of the most overlooked but very effective ways of modeling to children about equality that sometimes parents don't even consider. Um, thank you so much for um, breaking that down for us. I think that's really helpful. And I think a lot of our mothers are going to take away great value from that description. Um, I know that Monique has some really fun quick fire questions for you. Um, so Monique, over to you. Well, before that, I actually wanted to say how um, honored we are of having you here today. I think you're an extraordinary human being and what you're doing really resonates with us. Um, 
it, it goes it goes hand in hand and it's beautiful to see how you know we have that thing in common that passion is that fire is that thing that you don't know where it's coming from call it divine that just keeps lifting you up and you know to see what you're saying is like following as a mother following our dream is the best way to teach our children how to follow theirs just do it by example and the same thing with racism and the same thing with generation equality do it by example so i think that is the best advice that that we've gone really i mean amongst incredible tips and insight that you have given us um and we we're about to wrap up i could go in for hours <laughs> <laughs> i could really um i think well we do we do a little fire questions actually um and this one it, we're, we're gonna do two this one's a very simple one because what it what it says is it it defines almost and it gives you an idea of of what is that person doing that really um it's it's defining them all this mm -hmm. what is the first thing you do like the very first when you wake up in the morning mm, the first thing i do when i wake up in the morning is probably look left and right to see i, I literally have my ears pricked up to see if anybody is awake <laughs> that's the first thing but i'm only joking my routine is usually i'll wake up and my husband always laughs because he says you never just stay in bed i just jump up <laughs> and i instantly I will be thinking in my head, thank you God that I have woken up today. And I also, I sometimes, depending on what kind of day I've got, be like, God, please just give me the strength because <laughs> I, I might feel exhausted. But the first thing I usually do when I open my eyes is give thanks. And that might sound cliche, but it's not always like I'm on my knees praying, but I literally just have a moment to say, you know what, thank you, I'm up. Okay, let's do this day. And kind of get myself a bit charged because I know once I get up, then it's full on and yeah um i i all i don't know that's that's when i first get up but i mean if you're talking about once i'm actually awake awake i always pray that's i always pray i have to if i miss my prayer in the morning it my day doesn't feel right and that's the truth i like I, people will call it setting their intentions but i will just say it's i will say it's a prayer but yeah I love that. I love that because that that is what works for you. And because we have obviously different kind of viewers, some people yeah. call it mindset, some people call it meditation, prayer, but it's so important, isn't it? To set yeah. up your intention. And, and it seems to be working wonders for you. So thank you so much for being here with us oh, and sharing your experiences. We cannot wait to see you live at our future events. We're oh, very I can't cool. wait. I can't <laughs> wait for us to be free. Honestly, I can't wait. Yeah, thank you so much for having me, both of you. I really appreciate the time. And such a pleasure, Lenina. I feel like we have this instant connection with you that we've created virtually, and we know that there's only good things to come for when we meet um, live in person. Now, can you share where um, people might be able to find you if they want to get in touch with you? Okay, of course. Yeah. So I'm on LinkedIn. Um, my name is Lenina Ofori. I think they'll find that on your Mumble page anyway, so they can know the spelling. I'm on Instagram at healing over handbags. So basically I love to dress up and I love bags, but my healing is more than the aesthetics. So that's where you can find me. So follow me, please. And you can send me a DM and yeah. And, and also finally, um, is, is there any way that, that they can volunteer on your work, on, on the organization that yeah, you do? I mean, like if they want to, even if you drop me a DM, DM on LinkedIn, 
um, we can pick it up there. I can pick up the conversation there. And um, if there's things going on with my organization or any work I'm doing outside of that, that you can be involved in, then I'll, I'll happily let you get involved for sure. Well, that's wonderful. Thank you so much, Anina. And there you go, ladies. We can do it all. There's absolutely no excuses. Five children and look where this woman is right now. So thank you so much for sharing with us, Danina. And see you very, very soon. Cheers. See you.